Today's scripture reading comes from Song of Songs, chapters 1 and 2. She, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you, let us hurry, let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, we rejoice and delight in you, we will praise your love more than wine. She, how right they are to adore you. He, how beautiful you are, my darling, oh how beautiful, your eyes are doves. She, how handsome you are, my beloved, oh how charming, and our bed is verdant. He, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. She, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He, like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the young women. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and I am uh, blessed to be one of the pastors here at Exilic. And about two and a half, three years ago, uh, we did our most popular sermon series that we've ever done. And the title of that sermon series was The Beauty and Challenge of Singleness, Dating, and Marriage. And understandably so, because this is an area of our lives that is obviously very relevant and important to all of us, and so this is one of those things where we can't just talk about it once and then kind of never talk about it again. Uh, this is obviously an area of our lives that we need coaching on continuously. And so last week, we started a series on the Song of Songs, and the subtitle is uh, The Surprising Things the Bible Has to Say About the Body, Sex, and Love. And the Song of Songs is called the Song of Songs because it is the most preeminent song just like Jesus is the king of kings, some would say Levain is the cookie of all cookies. This is the song of all songs, uh, in particular uh, with the theme of love. And so its purpose and intention is to impart to us some wisdom uh, with regards to romance, relationships, marriage, the body, love, and sex, and all, all of these things. And the main character in this poem that we were introduced to last week is a woman. Now, there is not a lot that we know about this woman. Uh, for example, we don't even know what her name is. But there is one thing that we do know about this woman, and that is that she is madly in love with this man. And in this chapter, we get to dive a little bit deeper into why she is so infatuated and in love with this man. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why should I even care about someone else's romantic uh, relationship? What about me? Well, I think the reason why this is important is because uh, relationships uh, can be very complex. Uh, relationships can be very confusing. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in our own community where they say things like, you know, I've gone on so many dates, I don't even know what I want anymore. I have no type. I've talked with other people that say, you know, I've gone on so many dates and, you know, my standard has dropped now so low that if they're breathing and normal, I'll marry them. I can't even find someone normal, though. That even that is like a rare commodity. And I've talked with others of you who have said, you know, I'm in this relationship, but I don't know where we're going. And so relationships are a complex thing uh, and something that we need clarity on. And I do think that as we dive deeply into the psyche of this woman, we do find some clarity when it comes to that. And so if you look with me at verse 2 and 4 of our passage, let me read this for us from the woman's point of view. 
She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. You know, one of the things that I find very interesting about uh, the main character in this poem, this woman, is that she comes across far more sexual than this man does. She talks about how she wants to be intoxicated with the kisses of this man. She talks about how she dreams that one day he will take her away into his chambers to make love uh, to her, busting any stereotype that men are only sexual creatures. Women are as well. And the reason why I mention this is because uh, sometimes when it comes to uh, the topic of sex, uh, this is something that we sort of shy away from or we kind of shove it underneath the rug and never talk about it. But the point of this poem really is to celebrate our sexual desires. That evolution is not the one that gifted us these sexual desires. Rather, it is God that gifted us these sexual desires, which is why it is so human and so innate. And so it's not something that we should be shy about talking about, but rather it's something to be affirmed and celebrated. In chapter one, uh, which we didn't talk about last week, the woman dreams of the man uh, uh, resting his head between her breasts. And again, this is not just an allegory for something else or sexual innuendo for something else. This is something that is very raw and very physical. Uh, there was one commentator that was sort of uh, trying to desexify the Song of Songs, and he said, actually, that verse doesn't really mean that. What it really means is that we should rest our minds between the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and you know what? There's no need to hyper-spiritualize this book. Okay, that's a creative solution to potentially avoid talking about something awkward. But it is what it is, okay? And so even, even in poem and artistry, we can take things literally. And, and so the point is that, you know, when it comes to a lot of the teaching on sex, um, I do think that the church has done a woefully inadequate job about talking about it. So we either don't talk about it at all or all we ever hear are rules about how we should or should not do it. And it's just, it doesn't even come across very attractive at that point. And on the other hand, I would say that our culture has sort of elevated sex to be the most preeminent thing, where our uninhibited sexual desires are the most, most important thing. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that as we still kind of ride the peak of the sexual revolution, that we also simultaneously have something like the Me Too movement, where there are countless cases of sexual abuse. And I can't help but feel that one has to do with the other. And so the church and our culture both have done an inadequate job of sort of talking about the nuance of sex in, I think, the right way and an appropriate way. And we'll talk about this later, but for now, I just, want to, I just want to mention that when we take a look at this poem, that our sexual desires are not something that we should be ashamed about or something that we need to conceal, but it's something that the Bible clearly celebrates and affirms. And one of the reasons why she has these sexual desires for the man and he for her is because they're physically attracted to one another. And so take a look with me at verse 15 and 16. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful, your eyes are doves. And she says in verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. In chapter four, he goes on to describe literally every part of her body, and he praises every part of her body. And the point is that while physical attraction shouldn't be the most important thing, it doesn't mean that it's unimportant. You know, we're not just souls, we're embodied souls. 
Right? And I think every single one of us in this room wants to be seen as handsome or as beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if you were to, um, as an experiment, uh, send a woman a Valentine's Day card and it said, you know, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen on the inside and I don't care what anyone says about your outsides. To me, your insides are the most important. She will smack you so hard across the head. <laughs> And my hope is that you will realize that we all want to be considered beautiful, not only on the inside, but on the outside as well. So physical attraction is something that is important, even though it's not the most important thing. Now, that's sort of a nadal statement, isn't it? Uh, we all know this. Our, my hunch is, though, that our problem is that sometimes we don't just value physical attraction, we overvalue it. And by the way, this is not just about men. I know that this is for women as well. It's something that we elevate uh, higher than anything else. And I want to read us uh, a New York Times article on the first page of your bulletin called Picky, 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 which may or may not be about you. And the author John Tierney writes, Manhattan is a magnet for people with intelligence, talent, money, and good looks, qualities that have traditionally ensured success in the mating game. So why do they have so much trouble? My theory is that single New Yorkers are singularly picky. They are afflicted with what I call the flaw-o-matic. You can think of the flaw-o-matic as an inner voice, a little whirring device inside the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. Well, it started out great, the young man began. She opened the door and she looked fantastic, beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head, but she had dirty elbows. The book of Proverbs says that uh, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. The book of Proverbs also says that a person that is beautiful but doesn't have discernment or character is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. You know, a gold ring is beautiful. Pig's snout, not so much. Such is a person that is beautiful on the outside, but has no character. And so while physical attraction is something that we should value, it's not something that we should overvalue. And if I can follow up with the second uh, excerpt from an article called Brother, You're Like a Six. <laughs> he writes, I once counseled a Christian brother in his dating relationship with a great woman. She was godly, caring, and bright. She was attractive, but not a supermodel. And for weeks, I listened to this brother agonize over his refusal to commit and propose to this woman. He said that while he found her basically attractive, there was one feature of hers that he just pictured differently on the woman he would marry. I'd ask about her godliness and character and faith, and he said all those things were stellar, and he was right. Finally, he said, I guess I'm looking for a 10. I could hold back no longer. Without really thinking, I responded, you're looking for a 10? But brother, look at yourself. You're like a six. If you ever find the woman you're looking for and she has your attitude, what makes you think she would ever have you? And you know what? Here's the other thing. Let's just say you do find a 10 and hypothetically, for whatever reason, they choose you. You do know that if you do find a 10, just because they might be a 10 on the outside, it doesn't mean that they're going to be a 10 when it comes to being a husband or a wife. Cool wins in high school, character wins in life. So even if you find a 10, it doesn't mean that they'll be a good marriage partner for you for the long term. But here we see that this woman and the man are clearly attracted to one another. 
not only outwardly but inwardly. And before her body is ever physically touched, it really is because her mind and heart are touched first. And so let me read for us verse 3 and 4b. She says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. For B, the friends say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And she responds by saying how right they are to adore you. In verse three, when it says that pleasing uh, is the fragrance of your perfumes, your name is like perfume poured out. The word name is really, what that word is alluding to is the man's character and reputation. You know, anyone can be awesome on paper. It doesn't mean that they're awesome in real life. There really is a big difference. And here, character is more important than credentials. And by character, I really mean what a person is like when no one is looking. That's a good way of defining character. Or to put a face on the word character is, do they reflect Jesus? Because he had the highest of high characters. And so that's what I mean by uh, the word character. Proverbs 22 says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. And if you read any book on leadership, whether it's the Bible or Good to Great by Jim Collins, the number one thing that defines a good leader is not how tall they are, whether they're extroverted or introverted. The number one thing that defines a great leader is how centered they are. Or to put it another way, how high their uh, character is. Now here's the tricky part. When it comes to our physical appearance, that's something that is very, very visible and something we can diagnose in seconds. The problem with character is that it's more invisible. And sometimes when you're in love, it kind of makes you crazy and you develop blind spots. And so character is something that is a little bit more difficult to see and takes a little bit more time, which is why we need the help of our community and our friends around us to help us see the character of another person. That was certainly the case uh, for the woman here when the friends talk about how high his character is and they say that uh, not only is the woman in love with him but all of the other young women are in love with him and, and adore him and they uh, rejoice with the fact that she found someone as terrific uh, as him. And so because the woman sort of feels like the friends and the community around them are vouching for the man so strongly, it gives her a sense of confidence instead of anxiety and insecurity about whether they should be together. And this is the importance of community validation and affirmation and feedback. You know, for those of you who don't know the story of uh, my wife Hannah and I, we dated, got engaged, and married in 10 months. Now that is quick, that is fast, but one of the reasons I was able to develop a sense of security and confidence about her is because of all the people that vouched for her. I was interrogated like, <laughs> like in a room with like a lamp over us by her friends about my intentions with her and people were very, very protective of her and you know what? I love that because it obviously meant that they really, really cared about her. You know, my friends, they were like, please take Aaron away. <laughs> He's like depressing to be around now. <laughs> please take him off our hands. Her friends were doing the exact opposite. And so as a result of that, I realized that there really must be something special about her. And so for this woman, she not only um, is attracted to his outsides and his inside because of his character and reputation, but also because of the community and support and validation uh, that she is getting. And the reason why I say this is because, once again, that when you enter into a relationship, sometimes love does blind you. And I don't know how your closest, what your closest, closest friends are like, but sometimes friends are very non-confrontational because they are people pleasers and they don't want to be hated by you. 
And so what I would say that is that if they're not really saying this to your face, but they're subtly saying this through their nonverbal cues or hints about sort of a yellow flag here or a yellow flag there, you should listen to their subtle cues. And the reason why I say this is because you might not be able to see those yellow flags right now that everyone else can see, but when you get married, guess what? That's all you're able, that's all you're gonna see. And so listen to what your community is saying uh, in terms of the people that you're around because it doesn't only take a village to raise a child, it does take a village to help a romantic relationship as well. So the woman is attracted to him on the outside, the inside, there's community support and validation, and then if you take a look at verse 16 and 17, she also imagines a future with him. In 16, it says, how handsome you are, my beloved, oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. Verse 17, he responds by saying, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. Now, this is where poetry can be a little bit difficult to understand. In verse 16, she says, our bed is verdant. Like, what does that even mean? And verdant is another way of just saying green or is ripe or fertile. And here she's imagining starting a family with a man. In verse 17, he talks about the beams of their house being cedars. If you go to a lot of New York buildings and apartments, there are beams sometimes in the middle of the room. And the purpose of the beams are to sort of help the, the house from collapsing, to support. And so what he's envisioning is a home that is not just present lasting, but long lasting, future lasting, where they create a, a long uh, uh, term home together with one another. So they're not just thinking uh, uh, short-sighted, but they're thinking far-sighted. Uh, they're not just playing the present game, but they're playing the future game, not the short game, but the long game. They're not just looking for boyfriend or girlfriend material. They're looking for husband, wife, father, mother kind of material. And similarly, when we enter into our relationships, we need to ask ourselves, can I picture a future with this person? Matt Chandler is a pastor uh, down in Dallas, and when he was dating his wife, Lauren, um, they had a pretty rocky relationship because they would bicker and fight all the time. And it got to a point where Matt thought to himself, I don't know if dating is supposed to be this difficult. And so he went up to one of his mentors and he said, I don't know where, where our relationship is going. We, we fight all the time and we bicker all the time. And finally his mentor said to him, listen, when you get married, all you're going to do is fight. The question is, do you want to fight with Lauren or someone else? And he said, I want to fight with Lauren. <laughs> and so eventually uh, they got married and they're still together today. And so the, the question that you have to ask yourself is, do you, do you picture a long-term future fighting with this particular person? Conflict is inevitable. When two sinners say, I do, there's going to be conflict. What really matters and what really defines a successful relationship is how you deal with your conflict. So incompatibility is inevitable. What really matters is how you deal with your incompatibility. And so together, they, they uh, not only uh, picture, uh, are attracted to each other on the outside, inside, there's community validation and support. They see a future together. But look with me at the last two verses. She responds by saying, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And he responds by saying, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. The reason why I want to close with these two verses is because when it comes to relationships, it's not just about choosing the right person, it's also about being chosen. It's not just about discovering the right person, it's also being discovered. It's not just about finding the right person, it's also about being found. And if you take a look at verse one, she says, 
I am a rose of Sharon. Now, a rose of Sharon was a very common flower. She says that she's just one lily amongst a valley of lilies, and here she's battling again with insecurity. Last week, we talked about how she battled with her body image, and here she has, again, some anxieties and insecurities about herself, but how does he respond? You're not a lily amongst the valley of lilies. You're a lily among thorns. In other words, there is something distinct about you. There is something special about you that I see even though you can't see it yourself. Relationships are not just about picking someone. It's about being picked as well. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor and uh, author here in the city and when he was uh, uh, befriending his wife Kathy, uh, they talked all the time, they hung out all the time, and eventually their relationship moved from the friend zone to the gray, ambiguous zone, and they weren't really sure what they were. And so it was driving her insane because he wasn't really defining the relationship. And let me read us the last quote um, in a dialogue that she had as she confronted him. And Kathy says to Tim, look, I can't take this anymore. I have been expected to be promoted from friend to girlfriend. I know you don't mean to be saying this, but every day you don't choose me to be more than a friend, I feel it as rejection. So I just can't keep going on the same way, hoping that someday you'll want me to be more than a friend. I'm not calling myself a pearl, and I'm not calling you a pig, but one of the reasons Jesus told his disciples not to cast pearls before swine was because a pig can't recognize the value of a pearl. It would seem like just a pebble, if you can't see me as valuable to you, then I'm, I'm not going to keep throwing myself into your company, hoping and hoping. I just can't do it. The rejection that I perceive, whether you intend it or not, is just too painful. When it comes to relationships, it's not just about choosing. It's also about being chosen. And the reason why I say this is because, you know what? This is all about what the gospel is about. It's about us being chosen by God and how God wants to have a meaningful relationship with you, the question is, do you view him as a pebble or do you view him as a pearl? One of the ways of finding out whether someone really, really likes you and really, really loves you is based upon what they're willing to give up for you. And at the heart of the gospel, it's about God the Father who gives up his only son. Now, I know that not all of you are parents, but I still think that you can imagine what it must be like for a parent to give up their one and only son. And God the Father not only does that gladly, but the Son voluntarily, voluntarily and willingly gives up his own life to die for our sins. Now, why does Jesus die for our sins? Because as high of a character we might think we have and as much integrity as we think we might have, it's really not as high as we think. Pastor Ray Ortland once said, if you knew all the thoughts that I thought of on a daily basis, you would never want me as your pastor. And I can echo that statement. And I'm sure you can echo that statement as well. Our character is not like perfume that is poured out, that oozes this pleasing fragrance. Oftentimes, oftentimes, our public persona does not match our private lives. And it is for this reason that Jesus empties himself of his reputation on the cross, and he gives us his reputation and character. And he takes on our flawed character and our broken resume and reputation in our place in exchange for us because of his love for us. Now here's the question, but do you see him as a pearl or do you still see him as a pebble? We choose things all the time. 
oftentimes we choose things wrongly, like lunch, a job, an apartment, dating. But this is one area, my friends, where you cannot choose wrong. You must choose right because the stakes are too high. Now, he wants to be in a relationship with you, but do you want to be in a relationship with him? Well, one of the things that we try to do as a community is to be a, a spiritual community to sort of support you in this journey or this relationship. And so you'll hear James share his awesome story uh, at two o'clock today at Curious. And if you're on the fence about Christianity or you're not sure, or, or if you're a Christian and you just want to hear a great story, you're welcome to come because we want to be a community for you, just like this woman had, a community to sort of give her confidence on the journey that she was on. Likewise, we want to do so for you. And lastly, we not only want to be a spiritual community to help you in your relationship with God, but in your relationship with one another. You know where the best place to meet someone is? It's not an app. It is right here. <laughs> meet someone beautiful on the outside, on the inside, community validation, support. This is the best. I would much rather have you meet someone here than somewhere else. This is the best place to meet someone, and we would only encourage that and foster it. There are plenty of people that have pooped in this pool, and there is no reason why you can't poop in this pool either. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should diarrhea all over this pool because that's messy, uh, and you might be thinking, well, people talk and stuff like that, you, but love is a risk. Whenever you love, it's always a risk that that love might be unrequited and unreciprocated. And you know who knows that the best? God. But the reward is also great. If you never want to take the gamble of loving someone, as C.S. Lewis would say, then take out your heart, lock it up in a coffin, and don't give it to anyone. But you can't live that way. Love always involves a risk, but the reward is so great. So find someone, ask them out. There are plenty of people that are pooped in this pool. Don't diarrhea, but don't be constipated. <laughs> Go ahead and ask someone out. And we are here, I want you to know that we are here as a community that would only encourage that. And we want, we want you to be in wonderful relationships with one another, platonic and romantic. Let's pray together.